Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing, with our Board President, Doug Leeds. Welcome to today's program, where we will be exploring the role of the Artistic Director. We'll be back later to tell you more about the work of the American Theatre Wing. But right now, please join us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. Artistic directors of not-for-profit theaters occupy a unique place in America's theatrical life. As both artists and administrators, they must not only pursue their own vision and foster a creative environment for other artists, but also balance budgets, raise funds, and even attend to the state of the physical plant. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome artistic directors from four of the country's major institutional theaters. Susan Booth of the Alliance Theatre Company in Atlanta, Oscar Eustace from the Public Theater in New York City, Emily Mann of the McCarter Theater in Princeton, and Michael Wilson from the Hartford Stage Company in Connecticut. To begin, I want to ask about the seeming dichotomy in your roles and ask whether it is possible for you to actually pursue your own vision as an artist while at the same time serving the needs of other artists and of an institution? That's a very good question, and I think it's a struggle that most of us um, are wrestling with uh, for most of the time that we're artistic directors. I'm uh, a writer and a director, and I think the vision of the whole theater reflects that. We're very, very engaged in a core mission way with um, the um, commissioning, development, and producing of new work, both with um, emerging writers and, and what we call you know, the, the works of, of master writers. So that's part of, of the vision. Because I have a fantastic team, I have been able to continue my own writing. Not as much as I'd like, but I'm still doing it. And I direct two plays a year, and I find it an incredible privilege to bring on my colleagues to um, work on their best work in our season along with me. So for me, it's, it's a very good fit. Yes, the short answer is yes, I've been able to keep my artistic vision going on the larger institution and also keep my own work going as an artist. But it took years to balance it to get to that point. Michael, do you find the balance difficult? Um, I, I, I do at times, yes, of course. But I think that, uh, uh. I think overall though, I think um, a number of our theaters are actually set up to host and make a home for the artistic director as their yeah. central animating artist. Um, and Hartford Stage, I think, from the beginning, from when Jacques Cartier founded it a, a, around classics and then shortly thereafter new work, um, has always been a place where they have wanted the artistic director, either as a director or an actor, to, because um, Paul Widener came out of mm -hmm. the acting company. Mm -hmm. um, and Mark. And, and then, of course, Mark, yes. Um, who was, who the whole company's work was centered around his exploration of Shakespeare and Ibsen, and of course you remember those years, Howard. Um, that I feel that that's what our institutional identity has been in many ways about. At the same time, uh, the theaters um, and Hartford Stage included among those are ever evolving and changing and starting to reflect uh, the greater complexity of our theatrical community and 
I think Emily mentioned teamwork. I mean, we have a fantastic team at Hartford Stage that includes a fabulous associate artistic director, Jeremy Cohen, a great dramaturg, Chris Baker. And I think with that, we're able to support um, the work of the both emerging and established artists, playwrights, yeah. and directors. And it's, and it's an exciting mix. Um, but there are times when you have to step back and say, this is a project I would like to do for me as an artist. And when you look back at the whole program of plays, you realize I can't do that because we're not going to be able to afford X, Y, and Z. So you sometimes will make what you might call a sacrificial choice for your own self in order to balance, say, the repertoire of that yeah. given year. Mm -hmm. But overall, I would agree with Emily. I think it's actually what our theater is looking for. And Susan, you were working as a literary manager at the Goodman immediately prior to becoming the artistic director at the Alliance. And of course, you were you were freelancing. You were trying right. to do other productions. So getting into your own theater, you're, you are the newest of the artistic directors on the panel, but it's been six years. That adjustment of coming into a place, and on the one hand, having your own playground, on the other hand, having well, to you know to initially be you can um, fool yourself into being drunk with power and thinking now I get to be Bob Falls, um, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> you know I'm not yet, and I keep waiting. Um, it, it was an interesting transition because uh, my job uh, at my last theater was to agitate on behalf of marginalized voices. Mm -hmm. And I had absolutely no responsibility for the institutional bottom line. And I was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so to, to transition from that identity to being in Atlanta, Georgia, to being in a somewhat more mainstream audience base and to have a great deal of responsibility for the bottom line, to make that transition and still have some sense of self-identity that involved the word artist was an interesting period of time. Uh, the, the happy evolution of it is that I've discovered I get a great deal of joy from hosting the party. Um, I, I'm, I'm very happy as a director. I'm, I, I derive great pleasure from the collaborative process in the room. But I truly find the, the imagining and the hosting of a year-long uh, community-based artistic party kind of a cool exercise. Mm. And that activity feeds me as an artist as much as my work in a rehearsal room feeds me. Mm -hmm. Now, Oscar, you've been the artistic director of several major institutions. It's your se the coming towards the end Must of your second tired. year at the public. And interestingly, <laughs> in those first two years, you've only directed one show. I only directed one show, and it was very near the beginning of my tenure. And in retrospect, um, there are ways I wish I hadn't. Mm -hmm. uh, the the transition for me is, uh, was really quite sharp because I left Trinity Rep in Providence, Rhode Island, which was a theater very much like Hartford and the, the way Michael is describing, it's a theater company that has always derived its primary identity from the artistic work of the artistic director. And mm -hmm. that was what the expectation was and that's what mm -hmm it actually the institution wanted most. It wanted most to carve out its a, a kind of um, family identity with the company of actors as the extended family and the artistic director as the head of the family. And that spearhead was what it made for an ongoing community party, but it was very much one that wanted to be led by mm -hmm. that. And that was a wonderful environment. Coming to the Public Theater in New York, completely different, completely different agenda. And it, 
And that's one, the wonderful thing about the public. The public serves a specific niche, not only in the New York theater, but I think in the American theater. Mm -hmm. And that niche is as a crossroads, that the public is the largest of the downtown theaters. It's the mothership right. of the experimental and fringe theaters of New York. And it's the smallest and scruffiest of, and the closest to the people of the mainstream theaters. And what it's supposed to be doing is making all of those artists cross by each other and rub up against each other and those, and those audiences rub up against each other, bring audiences into the theater that haven't been there before, bring experimental and young and marginalized artists into the mainstream that haven't been there before, take mainstream artists and bring them down and put them in contact with younger. It's that mix. That isn't about the artistic work of the artistic director of the public. That is about the hosting. That is about mm -hmm. the producing. That is about the curating of that place. That's what the public has always needed. And if I, uh, I think my analysis was what it particularly needed when I arrived. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that needs to be most vivified about the public right now. And what I've discovered is that me being in the rehearsal room is not core to that right now. Uh, I like it. And I miss it. Uh, it is a, a problem when I go home at night, and it's mm -hmm. one that I discuss with my wife. <laughs> I miss being in the rehearsal room. But I know that, that me being in the rehearsal room is not the core thing the public needs right now. So I have not succeeded in balancing the two. Um, I think I am making progress on doing what my job requires, which is um, uh, making the public the, the lively, rough experiment in theatrical democracy that it needs to be. And I want to say I really identify with exactly what you're saying, Susan. When that works, that's an immensely gratifying yeah. artistic feeling. It doesn't feel like, oh, now I'm not being an artist. Right. It feels like this is artistry, putting this all together. It's not quite the same as being in the rehearsal room. <laughs> well, let me ask you about another possible dichotomy, but I, I hear it bubbling <clears throat> up in some of what you're saying. How much does the work you do at your theaters how much does it have to serve your local community, your specific audiences, and how much does it have to serve the artistic community, the larger theatrical community? Well, let, let me speak to that just because that's so much at the heart of what this shift was for me, mm -hmm. is that when the reason that I left Rhode Island, um, Trinity Rep is central to the cultural life of Providence and of Rhode Island in a way that um, was wonderful and mm -hmm. is extremely rare in the American theater. It, it really is essential to the lifeblood of that community and it was wonderful feeling like I was running an institution that meant so much to that community. The choice to leave there and come to the public was very much a choice about saying my community is going to be the community of the American theater. Mm -hmm. And the community that the public ultimately serves is the field as a whole. And that if we don't do what the public is there to do, that's a hole that nobody else can fill. And so I feel, although of course New York is its own Megillah, right. the, uh, uh, <laughs> you got to see it All of us Nordic Minnesotans say Megillah. <laughs> but it, it's, it really, what it feels like is that the public, the public is really there to mm. be a citizen within the, the America's theatrical community. So if there's some f uh, fall off on that mission, it's not only hurting the public and the New York theater community, it's hurting the, the entire, national, the national right. American theater mm -hmm. community that's at right. large. That's no, I think right. that's, that's right. true. I think that's right. But there is, I, I think there is a, a tension. I mean, I, I certainly experience it uh, in Atlanta. We take very seriously the fact that we are a national institution, but we have a very local address. <laughs> mm -hmm. And my job is to find a 
intersection that's satisfying to both uh, the audience and to my, my, frankly, my sense of self as an institutional leader and as someone who is uh, very um, hungry for the field's innovations. So the trick is, what is the, what's the vocabulary that's developing in the field that can be adopted to speak to local concerns, local needs? And one of my, my great hobby horses right now is the assumption that there's a monolithic way to talk about sociopolitical issues. There isn't. There isn't. Come on down. There isn't. Do you know? The way in which you talk about race, the way in which you talk about gender, the way in which you talk about uh, right-wing, left-wing politics is regionally specific. Mm -hmm. One may argue that there are national truths, but the language with which we speak those national truths is absolutely regionally specific. And I can have a field-leading conversation, but if nobody's in my audience, then mm -hmm. to what end? Mm -hmm. It's not just the language, too. It's also events that happen in your community. There may be something that happens in Atlanta that would preclude you from doing a certain new play because of, of recent activity there that right. it might not be as appropriate, say, as a play that we might host at Hartford. Uh, that's, that's, that's happened before. I just think this whole notion about connecting to your audiences and then what is your mission to the larger national theater is something that we talk about a lot, actually. Oh, absolutely. But Mike Stotz, the, my managing partner, and I were having a, a conversation about it earlier this week um, as we were sitting down with the NEA, in fact. And I think that Oscar was so articulate about the American theater community mission for the public. Uh, all of our theaters, they were founded in and for that community first and foremost because they were meant to be, I think, offering the best in classic and new play activity to communities outside of New York. And the Carter may be a slightly yeah, different yeah, story it there. Is. And I think that, that that's, a, that's a, a debate within each institution, and that's always different for each one. I mean, we have to remember that theater is, in fact, local. You've got mm -hmm. to be there. It's got to be present tense in the same room with mm -hmm. an audience. And so at one level, we're all uh, serving our particular local communities, Hot and tip. and like the way um, the, the three of you have, have discussed, even Oscar when he was at Trinity would discuss, you know, we, we are central to our community. I mean, it is, it is quite an, a, a, a gratifying and good feeling. And yet I don't think our community, it's Princeton, New Jersey, it's very, it's an hour from New York. We use almost all New York artists right. um, or LA. I mean, we, we're a national, we're part of the national theater movement. Uh -huh. And the resident theater movement was started to make a real national theater. And we're each and every one of us part of the national theater. Now, how much we actually contribute to the full national theater scene, I think, is different for every theater. And changes but from I, year to year. I would not be serving my community if we didn't, I mean, four out of five of our shows this year are, are going to be seen in New York. Um, right. We, we are constantly moving in and out of the city, but we're also moving in and around um, uh, the theater field. I mean, we, you, we have um, co-produced. I'm, I'm hoping we that we done. will as well. And we're sharing a young writer right now, Terrell McCraney, who also was at your theater. But mm -hmm. he's the, his new national home is, is uh, his new artistic home is McCarter. Mm -hmm. we're, hopefully that means that he, he'll be going every which way. But... We're all part of, I think, the, the larger whole, and yet each one of us has a particular responsibility, I think, that is different from each other. And I think this is part of the delicate balance. Yeah, you it's have a to delicate keep an balance. eye on what your, how your theater is participating and contributing to the national field. Yeah. If, if you're in this leadership mm -hmm. role, but at the same time, what is the connection to the community? That's I mean, right. For example, 
uh, August Wilson, his home was yeah. Yale Repertory Theater. Absolutely. And fantastic, uh, Lloyd Richards gave him that home and most, many, almost all of his plays were prepared during that time except for Radio Golf, James Bundy uh, put that uh, on stage. And but we just no, opened it last week at well, Exactly. <laughs> so that's all a circuit. Hartford Stage has never done yeah. a play by August Wilson. And of course, Mark wouldn't have produced it because everybody could go down, down the, the road. road. But the yeah. fact is, people in Hartford didn't go down the road. We just did Fences. First time August Wilson had been professionally produced in Hartford. It was a huge event. And there were so many people in, that, in, in our community that that play spoke to and resonated with. And, Mm -hmm. And it, that was an important event for our theater to do August Wilson's work in our community, even though on a national field level, Yale had clearly mm -hmm. taken care of supporting him in the way that you're supporting Terrell now. Yeah. So I think that's something that we're constantly stepping back and, and there, trying to there is a There is a, um, I, I perceive a, a tension uh, that exacerbates this, which is uh, that which the national funding community supports and that which the local audience supports are not always the same things. There's a lovely sort of Venn diagram where they sometimes overlap, but uh, there, there is, I think, a national field aesthetic uh, that says, we could go around this table right now and say, who are the top 20 writers in our field right now? And I think there'd be a fair amount of consensus on those names. And those are, those are names that are recognized by a, a great deal of the national funding community. The local audience may or may not be responsive to the work of those writers. Mm -hmm. And your decision to bring the work of August Wilson to your audience is a really wonderful, necessary decision. Does the work of August Wilson in a season, how does that, how does that play when you're putting your season in front of, uh, I'm uh, editing names um, of national foundations because I'd like to continue re to receive funding from them. But <laughs> you know, you you put a slate of plays in front of a, a, a national foundation, and if it feels too familiar, that well, can I, I think be I, risky. I, sure, and I think, but that's also part of the balance. You would never want to do a whole s slate of plays that were overly familiar. I mean, at the same time, right after Fences, then we were doing the East Coast premiere of Louis Alfaro's Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner. The, first production in which she finally had flying and could realize that vision mm -hmm. for Minerva transcending uh, her overeating uh, <laughs> tendencies. And I think, uh, and see, th and I think that's what's important. If you're going to put an established writer like August front and center, and particularly uh, a revival of a work that's already been identified that way, creating a home for Luis, and I think he needs a home in New York, Oscar, if we can you, sh you can surely help play him somewhere, because <laughs> you know him from years ago at the taper, I too, I know. Um, but that's, that's, that's exciting to me, and, and, and that's mixing it up too, because Luis is obviously not necessarily a new writer, but he's one that has not been around as much as he should. But, but let me just flip this, because the, yeah. the dichotomy that I don't quite believe in that we're getting into is that there's the local work that you do for your local audience, and then there's the national significance, no, because I actually, agree. Emily's and my relationship was forged um, more years ago than I care to admit. Oh, uh, I love that it's so long. Thank you. Um, <laughs> two generations ago. I've earned every wrinkle in my face. When, I'm uh, uh, we began to work on uh, her play Execution of Justice, which uh, I commissioned for my then theater in San Francisco, the Eureka Theater. Right. And it is, a, I think, a perfect example of a play that everything about the genesis of that play was specific 
to that theater in that mm -hmm. town in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. It was the, the events were San Franciscan, right. the concerns, it was, but that very specificity mm -hmm. then allowed the play to have a real national impact. Same thing happened with Angels in America, same thing happened, uh, I mean, there's numerous other examples that is, is Color purple. Malamud said, all art has to have an address, and it's right. usually the thing that we, in the regional theater, shifting my hat backwards for a minute, um, <laughs> I have to contribute most to the national theater. Yeah. Right. Is what we do locally. That's is, right. is the thing that is most takes on the texture and flavor of mm -hmm. our community because when that is deeply investigated, mm -hmm. that actually pushes the national dialogue in a way kind that is yeah. you know, really significant. Do you end up in situations where there's work that you personally really would like to to foster that can't happen at your institutions? No. No. Yeah. You, can, <laughs> well, you feel some, you can do some, whatever no, you want. Money, money, money. There is some extraordinary classical work that I am dying to do. The casts are so huge, and it's all about money. Hmm. It's not about artistry, and it's not about there's, skill. There's well, and there's de it's and money. There's, there's definitely uh, money issues uh, about quantity at the yes. public. I mean, the public right. is still underproducing. We still should be having literally a greater number of productions every year in production mm -hmm. opportunities. Mm -hmm. And that's about money. But there's literally, and this is one of the great joys for me of being at the public, there is nothing that is standing in the way of uh, producing the artist that I believe in most. I feel it's, the same way. And that's fantastic. I, I do feel like we're, we're a little bit hamstrung by only having one space at Hartford oh, Stage. Sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I do feel that, the, in addition to money, um, that actually space mm -hmm. is a problem for mm -hmm. us. And that we're probably the only theater represented here that only has one one we just venue. got our second space. It's fantastic. And, yeah, too. and it's I mean, a it's godsend. I don't think I could have stayed mm -hmm. if we didn't but get I, it. I and I would that. say there are, there are pieces that I have uh, personally been very enamored of that I've chosen not to produce. Because uh, you think your audience can't handle we'll it? Would go on a journey? It, or? It, 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 that's, uh, that's closer. It, you know, when I, when I first got there, I, there there's very... Uh, uh, seductive tendency to um, paint with too broad a brush a, a conservative community. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been a, a almost six-year learning cycle uh, of um, developing a, a more comprehensive view. There are, uh, it's less about subject matter and it's more about point of entry. Mm -hmm. And I have an audience that when we deal with issues of um, cultural oppression, mm -hmm. look for the way in that is uh, a familiar window to an unfamiliar place. And that is sometimes the reverse of the way a writer chooses to enter subject matter. Um, but I think I know what you're talking about, and that um, sometimes, you, uh, like for instance, at Hartford Stage, we produced Top Dog, Underdog. And we did it in collaboration with the Steppenwolf, in the Alley Theater in Dallas. It was a fantastic production. And this is following its success in New York at following the Olympics and on Broadway. Yeah, and on Broadway. Pulitzer Prize winning play. I was not prepared for the response from our audiences that they were, uh, many of them, enraged by it. And sure. we got more letters and emails and phone calls. And what were they enraged the uh, by? Um, language. This is what they said. Language mm -hmm. and um, 
Amy and her cast have particularly chosen to explore the sexual um, behavior of, of especially one of the characters in K. Todd Freeman's performance. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some people then came back and accused us that that wasn't necessarily in the script, that that was more a production choice mm -hmm. and that I should have intervened and put... And oh, to right. me, it seemed completely consistent with the script. But I actually do think it was this discomfort with cultural oppression. And because the very next play was the world premiere of Everett Albee's Peter and Jerry, Again, both plays, you know, that play ended with Zoo Story, and, and both of them en ended in a, a, a brutal death. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have that kind of response to, to Edward's play. And I think maybe, is it because Edward is so venerable and known, and Susan Lloyd Parks is still emerging? Um, now, at the same time, I want to say that teachers, for many of them, Top Dog Underdog was their favorite play mm -hmm. because their students that they were brought really identified and resonated with these characters. But we've just come to talk about it as we can, we'll sometimes have our, what we call our walkout play. Uh, and that was our walkout play. And, and then we kind of embrace it huh. as such and take great pride in it. But I know what you mean that, and sometimes it's unexpected. Um, I just wonder, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. Yeah. I want to know if it's race. I want to know if it's gender. I want to know if they just didn't like the play. A lot of people don't like that play. She's well, a wonderful <clears throat> writer. Believe me, I'm, I'm a, a big fan. But that play, people walked out who I very much respect on Broadway. Right. They didn't like the play. I didn't see it on Broadway, but I can so tell I you. So I wonder if you were, I, I just, I, I just I hate to ever... Um, sell our audiences short or underestimate them. Sometimes they just say, you know, this isn't for And me. you know what? I think that was for, for many people, it wasn't for them. Um, but for some people, it could have been very much an issue of race. We have a very yeah. segregated oh, I know you do. community there. up there. And mm -hmm. I think one of the great things about the theater, and I'm sure this is true in all of our local communities, is that the theater is a huge huge tool to bringing those communities together. Absolutely. And I, I, that's changing every, every, every year where our audiences are becoming inc increasingly more diverse, not the opposite way, which is, so it's so exciting and encouraging. Yeah. But once in a while, y you push it uh, too far and you're going to get that. Mm -hmm. well, we're going to have to move to a break, but quickly I want to ask Susan. The Alliance was engaged in what was considered as initially a decade-long conversation, a dialogue about race under your predecessor, Kenny Leon. Right. Is that a dialogue that continues? Are you the beneficiary of that and all is now it, it merged? It absolutely continues and uh, continues in, a, in an incredibly fruitful way. Uh, I was, as a freelance director, I was directing um, Spinning in a Butter at the Alliance Theater mm -hmm. when I was announced as the new artistic director and it was an interesting uh, introduction to the community because uh, audiences perceived that because the announcement was made just as the show was opening that it reflected my choice for the community and so there was a a perception that the the white girl from Chicago this was how she was going to talk about race with with spitting into butter oh boy. which in fact uh, Kenny had programmed and asked me to come direct long before he decided to leave the theater. It was theater. Kenny's choice. It was yeah. Kenny's choice. <laughs> um, but it was it was an interesting uh, conversation because there was an absolute assumption that the, uh, the race identity of the institution's leader was absolutely going to affect that dialogue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And quickly, Oscar, for you, coming in and following George Wolfe. Um, very complicated. Uh, George succeeded, I believe, in making the public the first major American cultural institution that could not be called a white institution mm -hmm. anymore. 
and that was a terrific and uh, I think historic achievement. And mm -hmm. uh, suddenly the artistic director is, I mean, let's really just add it on, white straight guy from Minnesota. Pile it on us. Former hippie <laughs> communist. I mean, it's, uh, it's different. And um, I, think it's, I think one of the real struggles uh, that I have now and that I'll continue to have is making sure that we are not gravitationally pulling the public back towards the center. Uh, back mm. towards the mainstream of uh, uh, American cultural life in the sense that that mainstream is still dominated by white leadership and male um, leadership and white right. male leadership right 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 yeah. it's, it's a, that's a complicated question too but it's just How, why because it's a, because actually there is significant as we see at this table significant female leadership in we the are you, you think we are the tip of the iceberg we are the iceberg molly and arena you can name them until i must right. tell you there's a new study coming out in right. about a month mm -hmm. the numbers for women running major theaters directing and writing on major stages the numbers are not better than they were in 1985 really yeah you know what? Let's, let's hold that, and we'll come back to that in our second half. And now let's just take a moment and hear a few words about the other work of the American Theatre Wing. The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence, and we support education in the theatre. Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York. These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequal forum for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars. Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theater Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Now, let's return to the seminar. We're looking at a scene from the musical The Color Purple, which had its world premiere at the Alliance Theatre Company. The Color Purple is emblematic of many shows that we see in institutional theatres these days in that it was produced in a not-for-profit setting with the support of commercial producers. Since the country's resident theatres were originally set up in counterpoint to commercial productions, I'd like to ask about how your company's experiences with commercial producers has or hasn't influenced your subsequent artistic choices. Susan, I'll start with you. Color Purple is a fantastic example of synergy. Uh, Alice Walker wrote a story about Georgia once upon a time, and it's a novel that 
changed our understandings of novels. And we are a theater that is most concerned about shared theater for diverse people. And that story has a capacity to invite so many people into a culturally, regionally specific story and lead them to a universal sense mm -hmm. of, of hope and wonder. So when the opportunity came to participate in the evolution of that novel to a theatrical work, it, it could not have been a, a happier marriage of not-for-profit mission and, and financially stabilizing commercial potential. Are they all like that? Would that they were. <laughs> Would that they were. <laughs> but Emily, you mentioned you know four out of five of your <coughs> shows this season coming to New York in one way or Actually, another. Actually, I realize it's three but out of five. But, but still, yes. you know, that's, that's a Washington. high number. Yeah, is there, is there, does there become an expectation that your shows hmm. succeed not on your own stage, but the people ex see it as a greater success if they move elsewhere? Um, that's a really good question, one that we, we wrestle with. We never choose a play because it's going to move. We never expect that, but what we want to do is extend the life of the artistic work. So mm -hmm. we're often both for financial reasons, but also for the life of the work. It might be New York, it might be um, the Kennedy Center, it might be Seattle Rep, it might be Hartford State, it, it, it might be um, the Alliance. We're looking for partnerships around the country to extend the life of the work. Now, eventually, um, it's still the clear truth, I'm, I'm afraid, that for new plays especially, uh, in order to be put into the national repertoire and to be able to be published and seen as a finished piece of work, it's usually not considered finished until it's had its New York premiere. Still today, it's I still think that's today true. true. Now, we just opened Radio Golf last week at, mm -hmm. at our theater, and it's going to be on Broadway in a month. It's still in flux, it's still in process, even though August is no longer with us. Um, and it will continue to be in flux and in progress until once it opens on Broadway, I think it's April 20th, then that text is frozen and that's what will be published and that's what's going to be put into the national repertoire and will be done all over the country. So we need to take all those things into, into consideration, but we chose the work because of our relationship with August. Right. Um, and our audience is mad for him. Um, sure. And we wanted to help shepherd his last play in. Oscar, at the public, there have obviously been phenomenal successes commercially coming out of the public, certainly Chorus Line, which is now back on Broadway. <laughs> but it's also been suggested there have been times when the public moving work commercially hasn't been in the best interests of the institution. Coming into that organization, where do you, where do you sit in terms of... It, it, commercial it, it, versus just producing for your stages? Sure, it's actually pretty simple, which is um, uh, I think both at the public, but I would say within the field as a whole, I think there is a real necessity for a stake to be put in the ground for the non-commercial nature of what the theater does. Yes. Um, what has happened since the second Tuesday of November 1980, uh, Reagan's election, is a shift in the uh, uh, cultural dialogue in the country that has gone so far to the right that the marketplace and the measure of value by the marketplace has become hegemonic, as we commonly say. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to talk about value in this culture separate from the market. And I think mm -hmm. the time is really ripe 
to make a very passionate statement and an institutionally powerful statement mm -hmm. that what we do is nonprofit. What we do is not about making Absolutely. money. Absolutely. And that there's a way of measuring value that has nothing to do with the marketplace. And that's actually the same function that the public libraries are supposed to serve. Mm -hmm. It's the same function, and we of course, uh, that the public are in the, the, the building that was the cornerstone of mm -hmm. the New York Public Library, the, uh, right. why it's the public theater. And that idea is something we've had a lot of practice at, fortunately, because we spent the last 50 years giving away shows in the park, giving away 1,800 seats a night to mm -hmm. people. And that idea, I mean, when we, last, last summer for me, that's the little uh, sort of paradigm I'd love to, is we're doing Mother Courage and Her Children, mm -hmm. we're doing the, one of the greatest plays of the century, an, an absolutely thrilling anti-war play, new version by Tony Kushner, directed by George Wolfe with Meryl Streep and Kevin Kline, and we're giving it away every night. Mm. So you're not giving away something that is of reduced value. You're actually taking the highest value that mm. we can do in the American mm -hmm. theater and making that free. That, figuring out how to not only sustain that business model, but actually extend it further is, I think, the, one of the public's big, big missions over the next decade because, again, as Susan was saying with Color Purple, there are many examples where the blurring of the line between the commercial and the nonprofit produces something of value. There's no question. But if that becomes the primary or the dominant model right. of what success is within the nonprofit yes. field, we're in real, real trouble. trouble. Serious Death trouble. to the profession, actually. And I think you can see aspects of that in the sense that you can see ways that the uh, uh, audience demographic in many ways across the country mm -hmm. is actually narrowing again. And you're finding that the theater's becoming more entrepreneurial often means actually depending more on earned income, depending more on commercial sources of income. I was actually feeling some nostalgia, Susan, when you were talking about the national foundations and who the national foundations support. And I was thinking, wow, I, I remember they when it actually mattered because what national foundations gave you was a significant source of your budget. I hmm. bet you it isn't anymore. Right. No, they it's used, not. used to be and a it's point. Shrinking. It's shrinking. It's shrinking dramatically. Really. Well, mm -hmm. I, that's true. I, I, the time I've been at Hartford Stage, I'm in my ninth season now. We've grown from a $5 million company to an $8 million company, and the contribution line is almost flat. Almost all of that has been with tickets. There you go. And it's one of the conversations that we have a lot among our team is, how are we measuring success? It can't always be by the number of tickets sold or the paid percentage mm -hmm. capacity, even mm -hmm. though that's what our boards like us to look at and measure. And sometimes, th certainly that's great, and we love it when we can achieve that. But we really do want to keep focusing on what is mission mm -hmm. fulfillment. Right. And, and, and how have we served that writer, and how have we brought this emerging artist along, and what new audiences mm -hmm. did we attract with this piece? Mm -hmm. But I have to say, too, on the other hand, some of the commercial partnerships that we've had at Hartford Stage over the last several years have been some of our more exciting, risk-taking ventures. Lanford Wilson's Book of Days was a big, epic play that we couldn't have afforded without Darrell Rolfe and Jack Fortell stepping in. Peter and Jerry, Edward Albee's new play, Liz McCann stepped in and helped mm -hmm. us with that. Edgardo Mine, Alfred Urey's play, which was about uh, you know the conflict between the Catholic and the Jewish uh, communities in um, Papal uh, Italy in the 19th mm -hmm. century, Jane Harmon helped make that play happen. And uh, it, it, it's exciting to me. We, we have a new play coming up next year. It's by Jeremy Sam. It's based on a Herman Brock novel. Most people don't even know who Herman Brock is. 
and we've got help from a commercial producer on that. And I'm not even sure that piece is commercial. Yeah, oh, but you see, this, this, is, this is what's interesting. Right? I, I, no question. And, and I, so, and I, so I can make work in the favor. Of I can make I can make similar lists. I can. I know. But right, you know okay, what? You know what yeah. I think the problem we're going to yeah. find is right. that that is something that is really a product of the last ten years, ten or twelve years. This this sort of sense of enhancement being not something that happens once every few years for a major musical. Once every other year for us. Yeah, yeah. but it, but enhance. But it's also happening on odder projects, smaller projects. You're finding it again, like with the Alfred Urey project or right. the Land I absolutely don't believe that's going to be sustainable. Because you think at some point I it's going to dry the, out. I think the commercial theater field is trying that out. Right. And I think the the mm. the what is starting to happen is they're starting to realize it's not working. In other words, there are not commercially viable projects that are coming out of the majority of those kinds of enhancing experiments. In fact, none of those places have moved to New York yet. Exactly. That, I, mean, I think once Peter the, is coming Once next that year, field right. decides they're not going to make money off you, Mm -hmm. They're not going to give you money anymore. Uh, that's not because they're doing anything wrong. Right. It's because their job is to make a profit. They say that. Which is a different mission than what right. our theaters and when are Right, and when for. you can no longer help them. And suddenly, we have a hole. And suddenly, you're in a situation where exactly, mm -hmm. you've been able to produce some risky work because you've had some commercial partners alleviating the risk. What happens when those commercial partners But well, you know what, it's a constant risk. search. So if yeah. it's not a commercial part, it's like Emily was saying, it's about <coughs> getting that work around to a wider audience. Mm -hmm. And we have so many partners this year. Fences was being shared with Dallas Theater Center. Sure. And Portland Center Stage out in Oregon. We, our and summer all I'm, saying, all all I'm suggesting, Michael, We can't survive. Our level of work, <coughs> we cannot do what we used to do when Howard Sherman was at Hartford Stage. That level of production, yep. large-scale classical work, our adventurous new play, yep. we can't do it without partners anymore. See, pa Whether they be you guys around the table or but the, the but commercial all, all I'd say is let's make a distinction between right. us guys around the table and commercial production. Well, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's actually, because, <laughs> right. what, what, and, and again, I struggle with this, and my particular struggle with the public is different than your particular one, but... Because it's in your face all the time, probably. But it, and also, well, as a whole other thing. <laughs> you know, but, 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 but the common denominator is what I suggest is that we really are in a transitional phase right. for the American nonprofit theater that we are all actually in the process of creating with our practice a new business model right. of how this theater mm -hmm. functions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that we should really know that we're doing that right. be smart about it not only in the short range but in the long range and right. for example one of the things that I feel like is so important about the public is to say all right we have a choice here we can do what in many ways the public has done over the last decade or so, which is lean heavily on the part of our legacy that was about transferring Chorus Line to Broadway, right. about the idea that that commercial success is not only some kind of imprimatur, but is actually a funding source for the theater. Mm -hmm. Or we can lean on the other side, which is giving away free tickets in the park, which is the idea that earned income and is not where we're going to live and that is not going to be our business model, mm -hmm. and that actually the core model should be something that's much more analogous to universities or to a public library, much more analogous to the idea that we have to find a way for the society to say this is the people's possession, this culture, right. and we have to figure out how to get it to and, the people. How do we get well, it there? And that is not simply <laughs> accomplished through restructuring 
business models, that, that requires all of us as artists and as artist-leading institutions to completely chuck the paradigm of how our communities interact with our work. Mm. Because the, the, the traditional mm -hmm. conventions of, uh, we, were, we were talking earlier, simple conventions that have to do with start times of curtains have to be looked at, but much larger conventions as far as what level of participation are we offering our mm -hmm. audience? Because the notion of uh, uh, static engagement doesn't play anymore. You know, we have, we have evolved into a generation of, of creators, at the, uh, creators and at the very least editors of creation through all of these other mediums, and yet we say come to the theater and have a static relationship with, with a work of art. And, and in, in our theater, we look every year to find those new ways in which our audience is central to the performance. And it, the, the days, of, uh, the days of, of post shows constituting audience engagement, I think, are past. We have to find ways for our communities to be uh, working with us to build plays, to write plays, to interact with, with, with theater, I think in a completely new fashion. And that's not a financial paradigm. That, that's an ownership paradigm. And I, I think we're, we're trying to reinvestigate the notion of who owns our theater. I, you but know, the community I mean, owns it, right? Yeah. I mean, the well, community, I mean, like, just like, you're not-for-profit corporations that are held as a public trust by a board of directors. Right. I mean, right. I think that's what, you, I mean, but, when we, but how do we make them When, when I say to my, if I ownership. say to my audience, well, this right. is what I think you ought to watch, and so here it is, and at the end of two hours, be on your way. I am not being a, a particularly good partner in that ownership. I, I'm not I, I being a good it, hostess, either. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I also think on the reverse, Susan, some of those audiences are saying, Take me on a journey, Susan, and I will follow you. And you, yes. I, I bet there are the huge percentage of your subscribers that want to go where Susan Booth's going to lead them. And then there are other ones that maybe haven't gone to the theater that much and are going to be a little bit in and out. And I agree with you. We all of us are, God knows, looking for ways that we can further engage our audiences. And I definitely think it should never be a static relationship because that feels so much like a movie or a TV event. And we don't want to ever be like right. that. We want actors spitting in the audience's faces, right? <laughs> I mean, we want to remind them that this is live and communal. And I, yeah. I think it sounds like your, your staff is really on I just, onto I just, that. You know, I guess I just would not uh, also get too smart about this. Um, <laughs> ticket prices is a huge issue. Oh, it's a huge it's issue. issue. Bingo. And I think it's a balance, Oscar. I mean, I love how you're talking about it. I mean, since the 80s, we've we're seeing huge, huge, huge problems. And, and again, since, since um, Bush came into office, we're losing foundation support because they're going to have to give to education, they're having to give right. to health, they're having uh -huh. to give to elder care because the government is no longer, Doing is being it. destroyed, basically. Okay. So the first thing to go often is the arts mm -hmm. and just when that kind of nourishment is needed to uh, for young people in schools who's doing it we're going into the schools mm -hmm. in, this, in, in, in the state of New Jersey sure. as our other wonderful theater companies in, in, in the state to give uh, young people a, a, you know an outlet Trifle we're the, the ones but you know we're finding ways to continue our mission um, and, and take up the slack um, that used to be taken um, by government so the, so we're losing foundations we're finding but they're getting tapped out more and more, is that uh, more individuals are coming up to the plate just yep. as they do for universities. They say, my gosh, goodness, this is a lifeblood for our community, for our young people, for 
But that's people what are so now retiring to Princeton because they want to see what's going on at this theater and, and our Performing Arts Center. But yeah, what's exciting about that is that it's that's such a reflection of the people in your community. If they're giving more to oh, the individuals, yeah, they, sure they really do own that theater. Oh yeah, and they, they totally value it, it and they say yeah. we want to sustain. Yeah. That and level. it is and that, in fact a big community. That's I mean, a good. Since I arrived, for example, we've had uh, a building and growing wonderful relationship with the different African American communities around the area, good. and so you know it was so much fun when when on, on radio golf on first preview it was you know almost 40 percent of the house um, was african-american and jack Vertel said how did you do this and i guess you know you go you go to the churches you go to the social groups you go you know it's been 17 years of cultivating real deep personal relationships with different leaders mm -hmm. and 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 people in the, in the community and it comes back and back and back and 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 it's it's very exciting to have a community that loves the theater and that mm -hmm. wants to come and be engaged and knows that they can come and stay and talk and, mm -hmm. and discuss what's going on at the same time i mean i hear um oscar and my idealism again gets rekindled not as if it ever died but um what are we going to do about ticket prices? What are we going to do right. about keeping ourselves, not pricing ourselves out of the people, out of the market of the people who we want to be c communicating with? Um, and it's interesting, people saying, oh, well, there's, there are no new young audiences. We're finding that our, we've come up 15% mm -hmm. on, on young audiences in the last year. they are price sensitive, don't you think? Actually less price sensitive than I would have thought. And have a 23-year-old and sort of grilled him yesterday about this. And as he said, I'll go to something you tell me not only is really good, but I will like. Or word of mouth of my right. friends, or it's on a blog, or it's somewhere. I'm not just going to go to the theater and spend 20, 25, 30 But bucks. I think most of us but have, we, we, we cultivate that audience through a reduced ticket price. We do it through a reduced ticket price, but then there's those 20-somethings those that are not students. Right. I mean, th they're the ones more, you know, the early 30s, they, they may have a, a job where they can... That'll um, drop 100 plus for a rock right, concert. Right, right. But we're finding that we're doing a reduced price also for the 20-somethings because they're the ones that are caught in the middle of it all. I don't know if you're doing that too, but... Oh, we absolutely are, and we have, yeah. uh, we have yeah. uh, college reviewers that, that post... Right. Uh, right. Our, our yeah. Posting their their response to the work that they see, right? In uh, in response to the number of postings, they get reduced ticket it's, prices. Yes, exactly. That kind of thing. We're doing all of this too, but, but it's a cultural seismic shift. I think that we have to be looking at too that people are getting their um, entertainment information right. from different places now. Um, some, I mean, I, I don't, Definitely. I can't think of, of a, a younger group that that reads the paper for it. Um, you know, and and much of it is. Uh, is blogging. Much of it's on the web. Right. So we're looking I at that. I want to jump in because we're talking now about young audiences. I want to come back to mm -hmm. the institutional roles in developing young artists. And interestingly, Emily, you made the comment uh, in the first half about women artistic directors mm -hmm. saying that you and Susan not, are not the tip of the iceberg but are the iceberg. Well, there are a few more of us, but What are the roles mm -hmm. that, that you can play at, admittedly, some of the larger institutions mm -hmm. in the country at fostering the next generation and really diversifying the artist pool in America? Mm -hmm. well, the, well, I, I think, I mean, there's, there's, um, <laughs> there, there's two issues. In terms of, of uh, female artists coming up, we, uh, we have we have to make our workplaces family friendly. 
the right. notion that, that uh, the rehearsal hall and the, mm -hmm. the theater proper is not family friendly just is, is repugnant to me. Um, and so that, that's a big part of it because it, it cannot be a choice. There are so many women who were on a track to run institutions and stepped out or made a decision mm. not that's to right. have children. Mm. That's right. And, and that, uh, it, that, that, that has to be institutions have to pay attention to that. They absolutely have to pay attention to that. Uh, in terms of young artists, I think one of the things that's, that, that I would say uh, all four of these theaters do is we offer young artists productions, not simply workshops and readings, but productions. Right. And I think that there's a, a, a big difference between offering somebody a commission and offering somebody a, a staged reading at your institution. Uh, one of the things that, that I take great pride in is at the time that Marcia Norman was on our stage uh, as the book writer for Color Purple, one of her Juilliard students was <laughs> the next show up. Mm. Oh, wow. And, right. and th it. that that kind of support uh, for young writers, I think, is critical. Mm -hmm. I think we all do it. Mm -hmm. We all do it. Yeah, <coughs> we're just instituting right now a, a new program in one of our theaters, the Shiva. Uh, we're putting up a play called In Darfur, which a wonderful young writer named Winter Miller wrote after she went to Darfur less, um, less than a year ago, eight months ago, mm -hmm. ten months ago now. And part of what we're trying, and that show will be performing two weeks from now, and part of what we're trying to do is get a m rotating model going in the Shiva where when we're fully um, functioning that we will have a new play running there every month, uh, year-round. Mm -hmm. So that three-week run, one-week turnaround, three-week one, one-week turnaround. With, uh, we're starting with a $15 ticket price. Uh, it is my fervent hope to get that ticket price to zero by a year from now. Wow. So it's also about a different audience. But part of what we're trying right. to do is just increase the quantity of opportunities mm -hmm. available so that, among other things, just lower the bar on how good a play has to be before you can put it in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. Lower the bar on how quickly you can just respond to an event or uh, again the 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 sort of thing I said when I got on the phone to raise the money so we could do the Darfur project is shouldn't we do a play in the American theater about a genocide that isn't five years afterwards and the fundamental theme being the great sense of guilt and regret we feel about what we failed to do about the last mm -hmm. genocide what if we actually are able to put a play up at a time when we can still do something? Right. So to talk about audience involvement, we're partnering with SaveDarfur.org and a, a couple of other organizations who actually want to be nameless because they don't want to draw attention to their activities in Darfur, uh, where when the audience walks out of the theater, there are going to be wireless stations where they can directly contact wow. their congresspeople. Um, there are going to be telephones and postcards so that we can directly involve in the disvestment campaign in the Sudan. And that sense of trying to make the theater a place where not only you experience a play, but you actually engage in social and activism. And it's catalytic. Right. Exactly. Is, mm -hmm. I mean, well, that goes back to extending the... Right. It's longer than two hours. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think in addition to the, all these opportunities for the artists that may be freelance coming in for these extraordinary programs that Oscar and Susan were talking about, um, I think also within our staffs, Harford Stage has, a, for instance, a rich history. Irene Lewis was Paul Weindorf's associate, and then she went on to run a theater. Tracy Brigden was my associate, now she's running City Theater in Pittsburgh. And, and I think that is a role that all of our theaters, um, Peter Dubois on your staff, and uh, yes. Mara and others on, mm -hmm. on Mara, yours. Loretta. Uh, yeah, Loretta Greco mm -hmm. came. My uh, first uh, intern. Yes. <laughs> and, and I yep. think 
sometimes that we don't talk about that enough is that these the artistic homes and the mentorships yeah. and that really is the future leadership and also this TCG program of the mentor mentee program has been fantastic Eric Ting at Long Wharf Theater has come out of uh, Gordon's mentorship there and is, is going great guns and Hannah Sharif is this fantastic uh, young uh, African-American woman that is going to, I think, really take the American theater by storm. And, and she's been with us for the last two years. And I, mm -hmm. it's ex I, I, I'm very grateful to TCG for helping channel NEA money. Yes, we've to done that, that since too. We, we have it since too. we don't really have large money from the NEA anymore. I think just to, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but most of these companies sitting around the table used to get $300,000 from the NEA. And I w would bet most of the, us are getting 30000 a year or so. Yep. And that's a huge discrepancy. That's a lot of lunches or a lot of tickets yeah. to sell the building. It's not adjusting for inflation either. And no. money, money for no. innovation uh, is, is hard money to come by. Do you know, we have a, a national graduate playwriting competition where we invite final year MFA students to submit work and the, the mm -hmm. uh, winning script gets a full production on our stage the following year. That is completely funded by an anonymous donor and it's an institutional uh, mm -hmm. imperative now, we had taken that competition to a number of national funders and no, did not see I know. support for it. You will not, no. But part of but, uh, what these guys are talking about is also something that I think it's not just a question of us talking about it more, Michael. I, I think that by talking about it more, we can hopefully take more responsibility for it as a field. Right. I actually don't think as a field we are taking enough responsibility for okay. training our successors and for in the, uh, by answering the question of which young artists are we investing in. And mm -hmm. I'm particularly, I'm sensitive to this issue of artistic leaders, directors yeah. and people who are on the track to run these institutions. By making that choice, we are defining the future of American theater. It's a very serious responsibility. As, as all of us have at various points been up for jobs or sat on panels, <laughs> you know, selecting other people for jobs, or, we actually know the people who are qualified to run the major nonprofit theaters is a tiny pool, right. and it is not something you can come out of nowhere to do. That's it's right. actually it's a it's a it's a field as complicated as medicine, and the yes. degree of hands-on experience and training you need to be eligible to run one mm. of these That's right. can only be given to you by us, by mm -hmm. the people who are currently running us. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They're holding up a sign that says it's goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> 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 the brakes on this. <laughs> but this discussion has been terrific in just showing the breadth of issues that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in the very complicated role of you being see? artistic directors. <laughs> and we thank you for being with us. Yes. Thank you, thank you also for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theatre.